Welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director with Jacob Alexander Ferg. I am sitting here with Billy Tierney. Uh, Billy, how are you doing today? I am doing well. Yeah, I'm uh, kicking it at work and, um, you know, no longer in the artistic director role here. Yes. But still doing uh, the, the common good of... Um, you know, promoting improv theater. Yeah, of course. Uh, so for the listener who might not be familiar with you, can you give a background of uh, your theater experience? You can leave in and omit whatever you want, uh, but just a kind of brief history of Billy Sure, Tierney. Sure. Uh, first of all, I'd be shocked if people didn't know who I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's the most arrogant I'll ever be. Yeah. Um, no, uh, so, okay, I did not do any theater or uh, anything dramatic in high school. I had stage fright as a kid. Oh. Um, got into improv after high school, basically directly after high school. I got invited to an improv show, and I was really not wanting to go to it, very hesitant uh, to go to it, because I thought that it would be something that it's not, which is, I think, everybody's impression of improv. Yeah. They hear about it or... You know, it doesn't really click what it is. Like, for example, I watched a lot of Whose Line Is It Anyway when I was a kid, and I did not associate that with being improvisation. I just was like, oh, this is really funny. I see. And didn't have any idea that it was, you know, made up. And I, I guess I should have. In hindsight, I, like, thinking back, I, I maybe was aware to some extent that they were making it up, but I didn't know that that's what improv was. So I went and saw an improv show, and I was really blown away by how casual and funny it was. Just sort of the atmosphere was perfect. It was a really crappy, dingy theater, uh, dingy room, you know, uh, and and the underground nature of it was appealing. I I just was really intrigued by it. So I went to see that show. It was a once a week show at 10.30 on a Saturday night and went to that six or seven or eight times in a row. And then- Oh, cool, well. Yeah, I got just fascinated with how come some shows are way better than others and yeah. you know like what's the why is this person always good and why are the other people not necessarily always good and you know what there has to be some something to it you know and in hindsight like now I'd call it the craft of it mm-hmm. at the time I just recognized that some of it was better than other stuff yeah so I called the hotline for tickets and I left a you know very non-assumptive message about you know, how do people get involved with this? And I'm not looking to get up on stage at all. I just want to know, like, I'm just intrigued by it. And the guy that was running it at the time, uh, Mark Robbins, he, he was hosting every show and he was the player that was just astoundingly good, you know, would come into a scene that I thought was just awful and say a line that made everything make sense about what had happened. And, you know, I was sort of shocked at how that was possible and uh, he took me under his wing, essentially. He called me back, and we had a 30- to 45-minute conversation on the phone, and he was just asking me a bunch of questions about my background and who I was, and um, he was like, well, why don't you come to rehearsal? It's this Wednesday, and I was really nervous for that, and maybe it's what I was asking for, even though I was saying <laughs> yeah. that I didn't want to do it, and I just was curious. Uh, but he sat me down, and... Um, you know, told the players to keep warming up and sat me down. And, uh, the first thing that he said to me was, uh, you are not funny. And if you'd like to learn how to be funny, then, then I'll teach you how to be funny. And I was like, I'm in, I'm totally in. Like, it was a really nice 
thing to say, even though it seems like it would be really rude. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like I was, I, I think I did consider myself funny. You know, I made my teammates laugh in track and field and cross country. And, you know, I, I always had a, a wit, um, sarcasm. And, you know, at, at some point I had stopped making fun of people. Uh, you know, I think in my high school years, I used making fun of people as a defense mechanism because I'm small. Yeah, typical. You know? yeah. So like, okay, you're going to put me in a trash can, but you're going to get laced verbally in front of 20 <laughs> of your friends. You don't want to mess with that. Yeah. Guy, right? yeah. So it's like, it's my, my defense mechanism. But I got over that before I found improv. I was like, ah, it's just not, I just don't like the feeling of, you know, making people laugh at another person's expense. And, and that idea has sort of, followed me throughout life and improv is a real big help in like f- figuring out how to be funny without you know making it at, at the expense of someone else so that's been really important to me and so he took me under his wing and um, I went to their rehearsals for you know just regularly started doing tech you know doing the lights for the shows and getting involved in that way and um, I made a ton of mistakes I was really bad at improv uh, <laughs> when I started and um, eventually, like two years into it, uh, he sat me down for like a art- artistic review, you know, like a, a player like evaluation. A one-on-one. Yeah, because yeah, it was a three-on-one at the time <laughs> because he had two co-artistic directors. He was transitioning out. He was having babies and going to school for yeah. you know his career, and so he was like sort of on the way out, which is unfortunate for the improv scene in Spokane, but. Um, but really good in other ways too, because people could like make it their own and, and take it over from the, the boss man yeah. who was stepping down. So I did that and in that evaluation, I, I was told, mine was so brief. It was at his house and I drove to his house and got out of the car and went in there and they were th- the three of them were sitting at a table and from my understanding, everybody else's was like an hour you know, of, of improv chat and mine was like five minutes. I, huh. I just sat down and, you know, like, it seems like maybe they didn't want to talk to me or something, but, uh, in truth, uh, what they said was, we all agree that you know how to do everything to some extent with improv, you know, how to say yes better than most. And that was like a real prideful point for me that was that I knew how to say yes to the reality. It didn't matter what was going on. I was in it. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't ever blocking the reality. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, this is what's going on. I'm, I'm here. And they said, you struggle with the and. You struggle with adding your own thing. And we know you know how to do it, uh, but you're, you don't do it very often. We see when you do add something that it's beneficial to the scene. We don't know why you don't add it. So what we think is that it's just a matter of confidence. So get confident. And that was it. Like that was the end of the evaluation. Well, yeah. I was like, okay. Like, <laughs> you know, like walked out of there a little mind blown, yeah. just like, you know, waiting for improv advice and getting, no, you're fine. You're doing the things you need to do, but you're lacking confidence. Yeah, and just that's it. get confident. That's an interesting note to receive. Yeah. So I did. You know, from that point on, I attended several of the Seattle International Improv Fests and, you know, allowed that note of, you know, get more confident to sort of infuse me. I started meditating before shows um, and I would meditate 
like in the green room with people actively, you know, bouncing off the walls around me and things like that. And um, what I would meditate on is I would sort of like imagine a blank whiteboard or something like that, just like all white in my vision, even though my eyes were closed. And these three words would scroll, just three words, always calm, confident, relaxed, just Mm. calm, confident, relaxed. And that would just really like prepare me for the show. I didn't, you know, I warmed up with everybody, but the warmups were not about that for me. It wasn't like getting my mind ready. The meditation was getting my mind ready for improv, like approaching a scene with calmness and being confident in what I was doing and not, I think the relaxed part is really important because an audience can tell when you're not relaxed. Absolutely. Like they see the fidgeting or they see the, you know, the hyper. And then it sets a tone for them to watch the show in. Yeah, exactly. So the relaxed is like, hey, we're all having a good time. Let's just chill and (laughs) enjoy this. So, yeah. And and so that was was almost 20 years ago that that I found improv um, through watching a show. And then so your artistic director roles have been uh, from what periods until today? Um... So in 2003, I went on a, I sold everything I owned basically except for my car and whatever I could fit in my car. And I left my car at my dad's place and I um, went on a six month, um, 15 city, five country tour. That's awesome. Yeah. Try to get some um, perspective. Originally, my goal was to find a new city to do improv in. That was the goal of the tour was Mm -hmm. to sort of like experience that, which is not Maybe I was fooling myself with that goal because only four of my cities were in the States and and the rest were in Canada and Europe. So, and I realized about halfway through the tour that I had never really given it a proper shot in Spokane. Like I had always just depended on Spokane to provide me the shot and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't stepping into my own artistic vision of what I wanted out of improv. So when I got back from that tour, that tour was in 2003. When I got back from that tour, I was introduced to the new Blue Door Theater. When I had left, it was um, in a little, we had a blue door in an alley off of, you know, a downtown road right next to the train tracks. And we had built that theater, you know, put the chairs in, put the stage in. And that was, I guess, winding down when I was leaving on my tour. I took six months off before I left on my tour. And Mm -hmm. uh, when I got back, they had moved into Garland Street. Um, And it's a beautiful space there. Yeah, I love it. But I didn't get a chance to help with that one, although the chairs were the same. Same (laughs) chairs that we took. They actually just uh, got some new chairs. Oh, did they? Yep. Good for them. Those chairs were awful. Yeah, they were old. (laughs) Yeah, those were a hand-me-down when we got them. Probably like a 30-year hand-me-down. So... So I sort of got reinitiated into the Spokane scene with a couple of the the younger um, new players there. I moved in with one of them, and from there I started performing a lot. And then eventually, I think around 2004, I was the artistic director. That lasted for about a year and a half or so uh, until I moved to Bellingham in 2006. So then I moved to Bellingham and... That, that's a really unique transition. I don't know that there's the time to talk about it, but essentially, like, I didn't know anybody here. Yeah. I had gone on this big tour, and in Canada, was I had rep. I had some reputation in a lot of cities, but Bellingham was not one of them. 
And so that was an interesting thing to be an eight-year improv vet and coming into a theater that was only two years old but was owned by a celebrity where the players here primarily had just sort of learned as they built it. You know, the theater was being built. The players were local talent that were just around. Some of them, like, excelled quicker than others. And so those ones became the note givers. And then the other ones became the note takers. And that created a really sort of vitriolic and poisonous atmosphere. Because it's like, we all started together, but now you're the expert and I'm not. So that kind of, like, really see, yeah. was poisonous. Yeah. So I was... I stepped into a really strange world here because <laughs> I didn't have any reputation and I, and I did play well. I played well enough to like show up one night, play in a show with Ryan and then get invited to the second half, which I guess was very rare at that time. Oh, okay. Ryan was just like, you should join us in the second half. And everybody was like, what? How's that happening? Uh, so that happened. And then the artistic director at the time, Tim Eisner, uh, sat me down and was like, well, we've got auditions for main stage coming up in six months. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to wait six months to audition for main stage. If you want to invite me, you can just invite me. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't trying to play like a hard card or anything. Yeah. I was just like, I'm not, you know, like I'm here in town. I want to be playing. You yeah. guys need me. Like I'm making your shows better. If it's just political, why don't you just like extend the invite and deal with the consequences yeah and it was fine you know half the half the players here um and i know this because we did a brutal round of uh player evaluations where everybody evaluated everybody else uh, on scales and everything like yeah one to ten on all of these traits and seems a little poisonous also it was brutal (laughs) it was brutal because even even the best players don't get along with everyone you know what i mean I see, so, yeah. so like even if even if the perfect improviser were here they would get some feedback that was like oh that's uncomfortable because all of the feedback was delivered to the players sort of without editing so it was like you just got the notes that everybody gave damn and even if those people weren't qualified to give that note they had a voice to do it did the notes get attached to whoever or were they anonymous no, notes? Okay. They were anonymous notes, but in general you could kinda feel I mean you wouldn't like feel who did it yeah. necessarily. There weren't there there wasn't a whole lot of finger pointing, but there was a lot of hurt feelings. I see. And uh, and so what I found out was that half of the people really loved playing with me and wanted me to teach the main stage more. And half of the people were taking a position of like, I wish he wouldn't, it feels like he's teaching me while we're performing and I don't like that. Okay. Which was an interesting note because yeah. I, I, you know, I can see how that would be, but it's because of my style, which is to not, I don't believe that you have to improvise with someone for a long time in order to get what they're doing, right? So my style is just really listen, be in the moment and respond and, and sort of be obvious about the yes anding, right? And I think that they felt like I was trying to teach them how to do it by doing it that way. I see. Wasn't my intention. Yeah. But... That's know. how they interpreted it. Yeah, and it's like, if that is true, why don't you learn something from it? <laughs> right? uh, uh, 
this thing. It's not my, it's not, not my priority to do it. But if you're like sitting there going like, I, he's teaching me how to improvise here. It's like, well, maybe you need some help. Yeah. Like it wasn't yeah. my intention to be like, let me help you. I would, I was open to that, but you know, yeah. the intention was just to have fun and play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have more fun playing when everybody's having a good time. So it's not like, you know. And you get in this dangerous cycle where if you're in your head thinking that another improviser is teaching you in the scene, then you're not fully engaging in the moment and you're taking yourself even further out and then you're doing improv worse and then it just spirals away. I can imagine it wasn't so comfortable for some people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because of what I had already mentioned, which is this sort of poisonous atmosphere of I know better. So let me teach you, Yeah, you know, and for me, it was not that for me, it was like, I just want to play and I like playing with these people, mm-hmm. you know, even if, even if other people are like, oh, this person's not as good as me. Like I like playing with that person. Yeah, absolutely. If they're wild card, if they throw out crazy offers all the time, it's like, well, that's just another person to improvise with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we're, when were you the artistic director for the upfront? I started in 2009 in January. So I had been with the theater for two years. We had a uh, big round of, like there was a hiring process when Tim stepped down and I did not get the job when I applied for it in that, at that time. And then a year later, the person that they had chosen was really not working out for them. And so they just, they didn't have another process. They were just like, we really want you to do it. And although that was like, I was honored by that, it was really detrimental because I was having to come in after a year of mess making and be like, okay, it's awful. Now it's awful. Yeah. Like had I, had I had an opportunity to come in right when I applied and take over for what had been good, you know, like it was, there was still some poisonous atmosphere, but generally things were good. That year was really, really ugly. And so because that year was really ugly, I was like stepping into this going like, well, now I have, cleanup to do and that cleanup took years and and the cleanup I'm talking about really is energetically the way people interacted with each other yeah. the way they gave notes which was always an issue but it was like after that year it was a it was a supreme issue we spent like six weeks two hours a week coming up with our mission statement like that's how bad it was well it yeah. wasn't just something where people were like this is what I'd like it to include and then the the you know the head goes okay I'll combine all those things into our mission statement it was like it almost felt like word by word going around a circle and having people say this should be the next word no this should be the next word which is uh, an improv uh, exercise yeah (laughs) yeah well if it was word at a time I would have been more into it but it was like same word yeah same word let's Let's, review let's review the word interesting And you were artistic director from 2009 to 2000? Uh, So, yeah, I was the AD for... When did that change officially? That was May of 2015. Because I was... uh, There was, like, some sort of administrative change where I became the general manager, but I kept the AD role. So I became both of those things and, and kept that going for a couple of years, and then I eventually was like, no, I, I need to, I need to be out of this role for no other reason than it was really difficult. And I felt like a breath of fresh air would be good for the main stage. I didn't feel like I was bad for them. I just felt like we had had so much groundwork that it was like, now it's time to see what somebody else can do with the group. Yeah. So during your cleanup, what alter your, uh, energetic cleanup, what ultimately do you think brought the group together or did it fully heal and cohese? 
No, it didn't. And I, my goal was to be able to basically, of the 25 members of the main stage, pick out four names and always be confident that those four could do a great show together. That was my, that was my hope, my goal. Like, like four random names or yeah, four exactly. specific? Okay, I see. Four random see. names, just pull them out of a hat and be like, these four would do an awesome show for you. Yeah. And I never got there. And I, it, that's not a dig on the main stage. That's, it's simply like with 25 artistic personalities, people that are doing improv and, and are a part of, I don't know if it can be called an elite group, but it's the elitist group in Bellingham. Yeah. You know, it's the 25 people in Bellingham that are doing professional comedy. So with 25 of those people, all very opinionated and all who love to hear themselves speak, <laughs> uh, it was hard to, it, it was hard to wrangle that attitude of we're all in it together support is bigger than a single performer how do we help each other get better that was a difficult thing to i think fully achieve yeah we achieved more of it i think that events like the improvathon helped with that when we would do an improvathon people would come together and that hardly ever got into a sour place you know Mm -hmm. where people were upset with each other I think that happened maybe once or twice. Um, But overall, events like that help. You know, what I'm really bad at, (laughs) what I'm not very good at is policing and holding people accountable. Like in my my approach, I really want people to want that from themselves. I see. I don't want them to feel like, I I want them to feel like they're not letting the group down by holding themselves accountable. And I was never able to achieve all of that. Yeah. You know, to impart that like, look, we're all in it together. Failure's fine, but to be successful, we need to be able to talk about those failures and, and say, what was it about that that didn't feel right? Or, you know, what's going on with this interaction yeah. or whatever have, it is. Have you found that there are ways to, uh, I'll say, cultivate the culture uh, to allow more open lines of communication in that way that would maybe establish a little bit more trust? Yeah, I tried to do that with, um, a specific like this is how we give notes after a show process mm-hmm. which has changed a little bit yeah. since I left but um, I did feel like that was helpful and what that process was was that everyone would um, give a note uh, for themselves and then give a show note that they felt that needed needed work. Yeah. So a note that they really liked about their performance and a note that they felt like for themselves they needed to work on and then a note about the show. I've seen that at other theaters before and it's yeah. relatively effective. Yeah, we go around and, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, what it really helped diffuse was like if player A always does this thing that they did during this show and player B's really steamed about it. Well, when player A says, the thing I need to work on is this, and then they identify the thing, player B kind of goes, oh, well, they're aware of it. Yeah. They're not, you know, I think that, like, it's such a strange thing to say, but people have a really hard time, maybe at this theater, maybe all theaters, like, giving their fellow players the benefit of the doubt. That they're trying. Yeah. Like, they're not, you know, getting in front of an audience and performing depending on your personality is really challenging and and it will bring out sometimes will bring out really difficult parts of your personality or things that you have that have worked in the past that are really not healthy for improv but have worked for your personal success on stage it's like how do you battle 
you know, we need to tone down the ego of what's best for me on stage and amp up the, how can I make this awesome? Mm -hmm. How can I help make this awesome? Yeah. Are there ways that you can teach a main stage to tone down the ego, so to speak? Are there exercises that you know of? Or again, this is kind of going back to cultivating the culture, sort of. Yeah. And I think along those lines, um, mine was a real slow burn. You know, mine was a, a trying, an attempt to make it safe here. I see. And I, I felt like I was dealing with a bit of trauma. Like I felt like there wasn't just, I couldn't just say it's safe. This is a safe place and you can make mistakes and mess up because of all the notes that had been given that felt like attacks. I see. And were received as attacks or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. It took a long time to be like, oh, like, I'm. this is an enjoyable thing to come learn. Right, making the learning space a safer space, like the rehearsal time. Yeah. So, what do you believe is the optimal form of note giving then? Uh, observational rather than uh, subjective. Okay. And what feels like personal? Yeah. I mean, it, there there has to be, you know, people, students these days, because I'm still teaching. Students will come up to me or email me and say, you know, you seem like you know what you're doing, and I really want you to just give me the note straight. I can handle it. I don't need you to um, be soft on me, mm-hmm. right? And I there, I got a little bit of that in the main stage too. And, and what's fascinating about that is that I don't, I don't curb it. I, like I don't bring it down or amp it up for any particular person. I give the same note the same way to whoever it is, mm-hmm. right? It's like, if I'm telling you something, even if there's no urgency in my voice, it's because I've noticed that you need to work on this. Yeah. And that's it. It's not, you know, it's never going to be harsh with me. Yeah. Because I'm not interested. Like, harshness doesn't equate to learning in my mind. Giving a harsh note is not, like, tough love. For me, giving a harsh note is me not having control of how I'm giving a note. Yeah, interesting. And I think maybe some people come to you with that idea of maybe this harsher note will make me better somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this kind of comes back to the note of be confident, mm-hmm. which is a difficult note to receive. And you, I mean, you said that you were like, oh, then I just like started focusing on being confident. How do you, because that's, I think one of the biggest blocks I've seen in improvisers is simply confidence on stage. I've, I've seen people who can kill it in rehearsal, who are really funny when it's just a casual setting in the green room. And the second they get on stage, it's just something gets locked up in them and mm-hmm. they're, they get worried and they're focused on the fact that they have a hundred people looking at them and they can't engage in the show. Um, what would your advice to those people be? I think it's play like you practice. Yeah. When we practice improv, we're, we are hopefully uh, working on our craft. I think that improv is an individual art form that's done collaboratively. Like we are collaborating with people on stage, but it really is a truly individual thing. Like I'm working on my improv, on my craft. And I think that if you work on your improv and your craft in a classroom setting, in a way that you're not approaching it like you would on stage, well, yeah, you're going to have confidence issues. You have to trust that the way that you're honing your craft in practice is good enough on stage. You're not getting the reaction in practice. Even if, and this is why as a teacher, I try to not laugh very much. And I'm not not like stonewalling my students. Mm -hmm. If they say something funny, I will laugh. But my sense of humor has gotten pretty particular. 
Like it takes a lot to get me to laugh. And I don't want to just falsely give them reassurance that what they're doing is funny. I want them to hone the craft, work on it in a way that they can then take that same work and put it on stage. But I definitely see and have seen for my entire time in improv that people struggle with the idea of trusting that what they do in rehearsal is good enough on stage in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. It's like somehow or for some reason when the audience is there, the bad habits pop up. Yeah. Yeah. That's improvisers don't or feel not confident because they're not looking at it uh, as their craft. They're looking at it as this thing that I must achieve. Like there's some sort of ambiguous end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how do you rein it in to focus on your individual craft as a student? Is that a, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think that oddly enough, you know, I think ego's the culprit there. Yeah. And and the reason why I say oddly enough is that you have to be able to focus on yourself and your own craft, <laughs> mm-hmm. but not have an ego response to that. Yeah. Not have, you know, like there were plenty of shows that I did early on where I got done with the show and I was like, oh, that was awesome. You know, that scene was awesome or that, you know, and there would be other scenes where I was like, oh, I got to think about that for a week, you know, and just figure out in that five minute scene, it's going to take me a week to do it. What went wrong? Yeah. Right. But I think that the ego part of it is I have to look good because I have people coming tonight, which is like, no, that, that <laughs> supersedes the craft. Yep. The craft is like the, the trust in the craft is imperative for confidence. If you just trust that what you will give will be enough, then you will. Yeah. Right. And I think something that people struggle with is they are equating how well they do improv with the like, the quality of their very person. Their mm-hmm. self-worth is attached to how well they're doing the mm-hmm. show, which I don't know, I think is simply just not true. It doesn't make you you can be the worst improviser or the best improviser in the world. It doesn't make you a better or worse human. You're just mm-hmm. a person. Right. Um, and so that's a thing that uh, people need to get over. Especially I'll, I'll kind of use this as a transition to, to teaching. So I uh, I think that you are a fantastic teacher. Oh, like thank you're, you. Yeah, you're a very good teacher, and I've taken a few workshops with you, and it's always you have a way of pulling this confidence out of students, uh, and I think it's just by giving common direct notes that's a huge aspect of it. But in a teaching scenario, what are ways that you can sort of um, allow people to realize that what they have is enough, I guess? I probably don't do enough... Um like positive affirmation for them. Okay. And I've been trying to work on that in my own teaching because there will be moments that are really brilliant that I, that I love. And I I might, you know, throw, throw a comment towards that. But I think that maybe more expressly saying, Hey, you person B, that was great. When you, when you did this, when you had that acceptance of this offer and you added your own thing, it really, you know, allowed the scene to blossom like that type of thing I don't avoid it necessarily mm-hmm. but I'm I'm more concerned with <laughs> I guess in my head I'm like well we should always just be doing great <laughs> and so like my notes are about the times that aren't great right yeah and I think that 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 too is like my confidence in the students like my confidence is in the students is to understand that I think that they could do great all the time so I give them the notes on the things that they're not doing great on 
And I would like to, you know, I think that the hard thing to impart is I'm coming from a place of you're great. These are the things you need to work on. And I think that what people hear is these are the things you need to work on. Yeah. You know, they don't necessarily get the you're great part. Yeah. If you don't give positive affirmations. Yeah. So there's some of that in, in creating, um, a, a culture within a classroom of, of being able to have confidence in what they're doing. But mostly my approach is this is a safe place. It doesn't matter if you fail. It's actually perfect if you do fail because then we all get to learn something from it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't beat yourself up about these things. And a, a, a theme in my classes is when I tell people, and this is from personal experience too, when I tell people you should think about the moments that were uncomfortable for you in a scene, you should think about the scenes that didn't really work for you. And what you should do is imagine a time during that scene when you made a choice that you didn't feel great about. And, and if, it was, if that choice happened early in the scene, then there, that's maybe a, a really strong, bold arrow of where the scene went wrong. Mm. If you made a choice that you didn't like and then the scene turned out poor. If you can go back to that moment and think about what's a choice that I could have made that would have would have changed because you know butterfly effect type thing here. Yeah. If you make one choice differently in the beginning, the whole scene's different. Yeah, absolutely. It just is. It's There's like no avoiding it. <laughs> exactly. If if I yes and an offer of yours in a way that inspires you, then the scene is different than if I just, you know, bowl over your offer or I'm not listening entirely or I yes you, but I don't and you. It just feels different. So what I encourage the students to do is is to really think about those things. And when they come up with an answer of, oh, I could have done this and that would have felt good. And they can imagine that that answer would have changed the course of the scene and it might have been more enjoyable for them. Then I tell them to stop thinking about it. Like, you're done thinking about it. That's the moment. And you made it in your brain. Your brain was able to provide an adequate response. And what you're doing by, by thinking along those lines is you're proving to your brain that it's capable of doing that. And that time shortens. For me, it was like a week of thinking about a show. And that week turned into two days. And that two days turned into, you know, the weekend. And then that weekend turned into like, eventually turned into the night of where I'd finish a show and say, man, that scene sucked. What was it about that? Oh yeah, when this happened, I did this and it, you know, I could have made this choice. And eventually that timeline gets so close to in the moment that you just don't make the shitty choice anymore. <laughs> like in the moment you're like, oh, I've made that, I followed that impulse before and it was not good. Yeah. Like yeah. just make the switch. Uh, what would you say are the hypothetical general reasons that people make a shitty choice in a scene? Usually it's just they're either not listening or they're not in the moment. Yeah. That's usually the, the culprit. Yeah, and then the other thing on top of that is how do, how do you work with students that uh, have the thing where it is uh, they yes and they're great at yesing but they don't quite have the and uh, down? How... How do you approach that scenario? Uh, I try a number of different ways. In, in many of my upper level classes over the years, I have gone into it with uh, very little as far as what I'm planning for the class. And part of that is that I was working with groups of people that I had never seen before. And I really wanted to like 
start with some scene work and see where they're at. And then from that, determine the course of action for the, for the class. And, and I think that, you know, your question made me think of that because that was the common, you know, people are really good at saying yes, typically. It's not, that's not the end all. When I talk about yes and, or when I'm working with students on yes and, the yes is just an acceptance of the reality. And that takes people a long time to really click over from just the word yes yeah. to accepting the reality, <laughs> right? That's what a yes is. Yeah. A yes yeah. is accepting the reality. It's not just saying yes. Yeah, because sometimes saying no is accepting the reality. Exactly. And that's a, yeah, it's yeah. a bridge that needs to get crossed at some point. Well, it's a very... It's, it's very simple and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. The bridge is simple. Yeah. Yes is accepting the reality. Blocking is denying the reality. And that's it. Yes and no should not come... The words yes and no should not come into the equation mm-hmm. at all. You know, you, if you watch the best improvisers in the world, they don't care about saying no. They don't... They're not saying yes very much as far as the word yes, Right. But they're accepting the reality. They're accepting that the way that you said that to me means that we have, we've got some history and I have wronged you the way that you're saying that to yeah. me. And that, that's a yes of the reality. You know, it's not just that you said, you know, we're out of eggs again. It was that you said, we're out of eggs again in a way that made it seem like maybe you hate me. Right? That's the reality. Yeah. And so that's what I need to say yes to. And, and, you know, like, yeah, that chain gets really deep. Yeah, the longer a scene goes. Exactly. You know, and and it could mean that, you know, maybe for me to yes that reality, I need to be ornery, Mm -hmm. you know, and mean. Yeah. Like, maybe that's what that indicates. If you're a very sweet person and it sounds like you hate me, I'm a hateable person. Yeah. Like, that's what that reality is. So if I were to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll go to the store and get those. I've blocked your offer. I see. You know what I mean? It's I like, see. By being passive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By not being the person that they are sort of indicating that I am, I'm blocking their reality. And then we have to figure out what the scene's about. And then three minutes later, we're glad that it's over. Yeah. Another thing that I think is a reason people don't and is because as a scene goes on longer and longer, there are more layers and facets that have been added to the scene. And so uh, an and three minutes into a scene uh, might be a block of something that happened earlier. So the scene gets more complex and it's harder to accurately and. And I think I've, I know I've identified that people hold themselves back mm-hmm. further in scenes because of that. Is uh, Can you speak to alleviating that? That's kind of a more difficult one. To, no, it's fine. Okay. I, I think that really... The ultimate answer is how well do you understand the reality? Yeah. Because I think that if you yes a reality uh, in the terms of which we just discussed, which means that you really buy in to what is happening, Mm -hmm. um, that the and is easy. The and is so hard when you're not actually yesing the reality. I see. When you're just saying yes and then you have to come up with something of your own that's creative. (laughs) Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, that's hard. It's hard and it doesn't work all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? But saying yes when you've really bought into the reality is easy. This is easy as speech. It's just the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it scenes do get more complex, but the reality should be building on itself. And if you're really yesing the reality, then, then there shouldn't be the complexity issues. You know, if early in the scene, 
when a piece of information was revealed that you said yes to, if you really understood and listened to the to what that piece of information was, then later in the scene you're not going to run over that, right? You're mm-hmm. you're just not going to because yeah. you understood what the reality was. You understood that we're brothers. Yep. And if we're brothers, then later on I'm not going to call you dad, <laughs> right? Because that would indicate that I'm not listening. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not I'm not actually guessing the reality. I, I think another thing that gets in the way of a lot of improvisers is this rushing sort of sense uh, in in their mind. And I definitely I had that. Uh, in my personal life and on stage for a while when I started uh, doing improv, actually for quite a long time. And I engaged with improv because I think it took me into the moment and took me away from those rushing thoughts when I was doing well. So you, you talked about meditating and I've, mm-hmm. I've been practicing a little bit, uh, but you talked about meditating right before shows. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, that is an effective way to calm I mean, literally one of the words was calm, but Mm -hmm. do you think that'd be effective for an improviser who finds themselves getting worked up before a show, or is there a recommendation for you how meditation can, or just even being still and calm can affect a show uh, beforehand? I think that it's probably really personal. Okay. You know, like for an individual, what they find relaxing. I see. I do think that part of getting your mind ready for a show is spending a little time getting your mind quiet. And if you can't reach that place of getting your mind quiet, you're probably going to have difficulties being in the moment. Yeah. If, if at any point before a show, even like hours before a show, you're doing dishes or you're, you know, doing a quiet activity that where you don't have music playing and you don't have anything going on and you don't have anybody talking to you, if you can even get in that zone and have a quiet mind, then you're gonna be more apt to be able to be in the moment. Maybe for some people it's like driving to a show without listening to something, without having media in, inserted into their reality. I really love music and listening to music, but I also like, I drove a car for five years that didn't have a stereo. And for me, that was awesome. I drove that yeah. thing on like 16-hour road trips, and it's like, well, that's a lot of time to just think yeah. about stuff or beatbox or whatever it is, that, you know, <laughs> whatever it is to pass the time. But, but there, there's so much value in shutting that self-critic down, you know, shutting that voice down that goes, I should have done this, or I can't believe this is happening in my life, or because that voice is not helpful when you're improvising. Yeah. It doesn't provide you insight into what's going on. Maybe afterwards, like that critical voice is important, yeah. but not for the process of being in the moment. You should place your own intention to go to that critic after the show yeah, and for say, sure. what, okay, what was up critic? Like, let me have a quick yeah. mental conversation about, with you. Yeah. Let's think about what happened. Um, and, but yeah, on stage that's, and that, and I mean, that's, <laughs> I want to ask you the question, how do you quiet the mind? But that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty big up there question. Do you have a recommendation or it's, it's so individual? It's, it is individual. And so I can only speak for myself, but what I do know about myself is that I spent a lot of time in silence. You know, whether it was as a kid playing or like, you know, I used to collect baseball and football cards and I'd just spend hours like looking at them without anything going on around me other than what I was doing. And I think that maybe because of the day and age we live in or because of the accessibility of media, that it's so easy to just go to that, allow that to occupy your brain instead of your brain occupying your brain. You know, it's like you... 
to be able to have a quiet mind, you have to like, you have to answer all the emails. You know what I mean? Like I know exactly you've got like an mean. inbox of all these things that happen in your daily life and like have come in, you're getting more and more. You can't always just read them all at once, but you have to take the time to sort them out and get it organized for yourself to where you can get into a place of saying, all right, I'm here. This yeah. is where I'm at. Some people can do that, I think, without having a lot of organization in their mm-hmm. mind. Like, this is where the individual part comes in. Like, there may be some people that when they improvise, it's the only time that their mind is quiet. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think also quieting the mind does something uh, to the the ego tendency of about worrying, pe- worrying about what people are thinking because that is another variant of the critic is the critic places... Uh, themselves in the audience for you and looks at you in the worst possible light and so when you have any yeah I know very personally the feeling of going into an improv show blank it's just I have absolutely no expectations except for the basic outline of the form that this show is versus you know a few things happened today and I wasn't quite happy with them and I didn't take the necessary time before this moment to answer the emails mm-hmm. that's a great that is a great yeah kind of ironic it is yeah, <laughs> yeah. super ironic <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the specific uh, tenets of uh, artistically directing and this is a question that I enjoy asking which is if you the first year that you were artistic directing uh, at the Blue Door do you have uh, advice that in hindsight would have uh, helped Billy Tierney back then uh, be the best artistic director he could have been? I don't think so. Okay. And I don't I don't think by any means that I was a great artistic director in Spokane. Okay. But I do know that it was my first go at it. And I also know that my approach to it was with the best intentions. I didn't have I didn't feel like I had ego wrapped up in it. I wasn't getting paid for it, which might help with the yeah. ego part of it. I don't know, but you know, I wasn't going into it being like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, yeah. be the one that yeah. makes this awesome." Yeah, my identity yeah. will be the yeah. savior, artistic director. Yeah. yeah, and part of it was the the magnitude of awesome that Mark had as my guru. You know, like I didn't, I still don't feel like. I've seen anyone as funny or as brilliant as him on stage. I saw him in a couple shows, and he was dynamite the whole time. He he's not off. Yeah. You know? he, <laughs> yeah. he knows he knows what he's doing, and you know I also now know what I'm doing. But part of that is an alleviating to me. Like I I'm not trying to be as good as Mark, and I'm not trying to run the theater like Mark would. I'm just trying to do the best that I can. In a, in a way that's not judgmental and in a way that attempts to allow people to discover for themselves how good they can be. Yeah. Uh, what are aspects of being art, an artistic director that you uh, weren't anticipating as you were coming to the job? Are there things that surprised you about the role itself? I would probably have more insight into that at the upfront than at the Blue Door. Yeah, it, it, the Blue Door was I kind of it. like just continuing what was going on and maybe like introducing some new shows or whatever that I was excited about here it's much more of a business I was getting paid for it I you know it was my job to provide a a year calendar and you know provide training and do all those things (laughs) 
uh, super stealthy notebook. Yeah, right? that's didn't didn't get picked up on the mic at all. <laughs> um, so, um, I, I think that the most difficult part about it for me was that I wasn't able to inspire like the hunger within people yeah you know i'm not sure why i I just think maybe it's my approach maybe it's my lack of a desire to police you know just to like allow them to do it on their own part of the issue here was that we had you know an hour and a half to two hours of rehearsal a week and six shows a weekend so there was so much more show than there was rehearsal and people wouldn't show up to the rehearsal yeah you know like eight people would show up to the rehearsal that's been a problem for sure that's a problem it, and that's you're doing so many shows that you're already putting in enough time quote unquote to the theater you don't feel obligated to show up to Mondays except that the rehearsal time is the only time that you're really going to work on the craft yep the upfront struggles with and I I fell into this too the audiences here are awesome they love the improv they're going to reward you for laughs they're never going to throw things at you. They're never going to boo you off stage. There's not really a worst that can happen. Yeah, an occasional kind of drunk heckler in the back is probably the worst I've ever seen. Yeah, I actually had, like, my worst moment I had when I designed a holiday format and it had a pretty artistic opening. <laughs> and and there was a couple of uh, drunk guys and one of them just, you know... Like, opening night of the show, doing the first artistic opening, and then we get into the very first scene, and, like, a couple lines in, the guy's like, this is not funny! You know, it's like, I, I'm not, I wasn't trying to have it be funny at that point, yeah. so I wasn't, like, personally attacked by that, but it was just, like, the worst, <laughs> it was the worst thing he could have said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. Like that missed like, so bad. Place that thought into every other audience member, even in a little bit of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they actually ended up either getting kicked out or leaving. But you know, it stuck with me because it was the show I had designed. I was taking a risky artistic choice with the, with the off the top thing, mm-hmm. which was a line of us seated facing the audience, you know, shoulder to shoulder line, and, and we were acting like we were at a round table of dinner. So we would pass things across and the person two way away from the uh, pole. Cool. It was kind of a cool yeah. dynamic of a family dinner. Yeah. Right? Where we could all be front and present, but we were also like be able to pass things it's to like people. Like unfolded. And, That's yeah, really exactly. cool. That's really cool. And, and it worked fine. Except that one comment. You know, as an artistic director who's trying to put on a show... I, I was so I like I said I didn't it wasn't intended to be funny mm-hmm. at that point the funny was meant to build yeah right it's like it's I wanted a slower build and then to hammer it at the end yeah right with all these dynamics because that, that always had. feels great yeah it feels awesome right we put in the work so that you understand what's going on so that when the humor comes it's so much more funny mm-hmm. right that was the goal yeah but that line just like ate at me that night you know and I it shouldn't have because it didn't you know. It wasn't the intention to have it be funny at that point, but just to be like in a room of a hundred people where one person says that. And like you said, there's a ripple of energy that comes from that idea. (laughs) Like, you know, I could just sense that people were leaning over and being like, 
is this actually not very good? Yeah. Right? You know, like that idea that yeah. like, the seed is planted. And now it's like a challenge. You have to win the audience, right. sort of, which is all immediately taking yourself out of yeah. the present moment on stage. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I don't know. I can't remember how we got on that, but... Uh, I think just things that you weren't Oh, the expecting. challenges. Yeah, the challenges, yeah. Yeah. So mainly it was the rehearsals versus performance yeah. and not being able to get everyone here. Because that's another, like, that's, rehearsals are a way to bond with your castmates. And so that's, it's difficult. I mean, you still bond when you do a show, but it's a different quality because you're here. When you, when you rehearse, you are here to, as you stated, work on your craft. Mm -hmm. When you come to a show, you are here to uh, achieve a goal, which is perform a show on stage. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is a difficult question to answer, but is there a way that you can start uh, <laughs> encouraging more cast members to regularly show up? I, this is also taking into account that it's a volunteer theater. Uh, they have lives, so sometimes people just can't make it. Mm -hmm. But it's how, how do you go about getting those people together? Because that's really when a cast yeah. starts feeling whole. It was and, super challenging. Yeah. I never figured it out on how to get people here. I don't think anyone has. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, in my heart of hearts, I think that just with the interest and the understanding that what improvisation is, is that it's a process. And when we do a show, we're actually just showing the audience our process. The fact that it's a product, the fact that the show is a product is confusing for performers. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know what I mean? So, I know exactly so, what you mean. So in, on, a, on a rehearsal day, you can work the process. And if you were working the process the same way that you would be working the process in front of an audience, that's ideal. That's what I was talking about earlier with you yeah. know, playing the way that you practice. But if those people don't show up to work on the process, then they just always have the same process that they have been using that works to some extent for them and doesn't work to some extent for them and they don't I don't think that they understand yeah. just how important it is to work the process and I can't just say it's really important to work the process yeah you know they just don't I think it's also acknowledging that with any skill set there is if you are not actively engaged in constant practice there is a tapering off of the skill I think do you agree with that you're kind of like not for me okay oh really yeah <laughs> but but I do I believe that as you're becoming an improviser and as you're working on the craft it that's true okay there will be i mean most everybody that i've talked to that takes breaks will say yeah, i have to kick the rust off or yeah you know i'm feeling rusty for I me see. if i take six months off it's invigorating i'm like oh like when i step on stage now i've got all this stuff that that's i didn't have before do you think it's because you have gotten to this place where uh, the mental review of the scene is happening. You've become fully like engaged in the moment. Do you think that's why, uh, if you take a long amount of time off, you can come back? Because that's not a thing that I typically encounter. Most people say they have to kick the rust off in some way, shape, or form. I think it's just a matter of the fact that I'm confident enough in the in my trust of what improv is to not worry about it. Okay, it's like. That's great. I'm not concerned with how it's going to go because I trust that it will go great. That's awesome. And that's, yeah, yeah that's it, it, very interesting because when people, I, I think it comes back to being taken out of the present moment when you haven't done improv 
for like say two months and yeah. you've been doing it for a while when you come back to it you tell yourself that you're not going to be as proficient as you <laughs> I'm were rusty. yeah exactly you say i'm rusty yeah. and that uh it's this like devastating self-fulfilling prophecy that you've yeah. uh told yourself yeah uh that's interesting though i do I, you know on a personal level i believe in the law of attraction I believe that what we think sort of manifests in some way. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily extreme about it. Yeah. But I do think that if I'm going into a show and I know that I'm going to be fine, then that is true. Yeah. And if I'm going into a show believing that I'm probably going to fail, that will also be true. Yeah, it's, kinda, it's, it's the actual idea of karma where you're setting your mind in a way that when you start living, your mind is already attuned in that way. Yeah. So you're going oh, to... Oh, I know what's and, going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're right about an hour. Uh, do you have anything that you want to talk about that we haven't uh, gone to in terms of the technical side of uh, artistic direction or improv stuff you have to say or teaching stuff you have to say? Really, anything? The thing that comes to mind when you ask me that is that it would be advice for people. Please. And, and my advice for people would just be to approach improvisation humbly and to not think that you know everything that's going on because even though I'm like in my position right now having improvised for almost 20 years and feeling really good about whenever I go on stage like I feel like I could go do a show with anybody and I'd be fine and I'm talking about like the best improviser in the world or somebody who is terrified of improv I'd love to do a scene with either of those people to approach it in a way that's non-assumptive that doesn't have any expectation that just is like let's experience it together and you know i'm here like i think that that's really like the advice that i would give it's Mm -hmm. not it's not about how creative can i be it's about how in the moment can i be and can i give you my full attention yeah can i hear your (laughs) offer with my full attention yeah right that's a slow mindset to call. I've I've been taking about the last year and a half to try to cultivate that hmm. mindset mindset specifically, and it doesn't come. It doesn't. It's not the instant gratification thing that you. Know. No, it's a slow burn. It's for a sure. slow burn, but yeah. I think. And to add on, if I may, yeah. to your advice, yeah. I think if you if you take those ideals into your personal life outside of improv they are much more readily and easily incorporated into improv because again mm. it's the mindset that you it's set yourself process. in it's the process yeah. it's the it's the craft yeah it's the craft that exists outside the craft but those tenets still are influencing you yeah um, there's yeah this so it's a this is fascinating because it's like when we so we have a corporate training wing of the upfront we have a, a private performance wing and we've got a couple of different things going on and when I'm talking to people about the the bizprov you know like the corporate training of it I will lead with something along the lines of look we're all improvising all the time you don't know what I'm going to say to you you don't know how you're going to respond until you hear what I say like literally that is what improvisation is so when you're talking just now about the process outside of improv, well, of course, like we are improvising all the time. Yeah. And what I, when I say that I think every human on earth should take an improv class is because every human on earth is improvising. So why not take a class that like helps you be better at that? Yeah. And there's something that's so alleviating about allowing yourself to do what you do in everyday life in imagined scenarios as imagined characters. There's something that... 
I, I think that everything that everyone says on stage is an intangible representation of who they are, hmm. uh, which is, so you can't really, I think you can watch someone, you can't really say, uh, you know, there's, uh, now I know this, this, and this about this person, everything they say is pulled from themselves. Mm-hmm. Every action and reaction is pulled from themselves. And so that's actually why it's interesting that when you say you've taken six months off, it's invigorating. It's because, well, you have more things to pull from. Yeah. You've just like refilled right. the, the, the pot. So that's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's just like a fascinating whole realm in BizProv. I mean, I'm actually, I, I wanted to tag on BizProv just a little bit. Um, how, how do you approach uh, teaching BizProv? I guess that's my question. Yeah, it's, it's just, very similar to you know teaching an introductory course you know there are some basic improv games that or or exercises that are played and that are shown to the people and and just doing them at the base level is mind-altering because (laughs) as humans and as adults we don't do these things Mm -hmm. they are not common to us and so even the activity of challenging your brain to work in a little bit different of a way gets someone firing. So we, we incorporate business principles, but business principles are very similar to improv principles. Like you want to listen and you want to connect and you want to, you know, be there for your team when they have a request of you. And, and so they're very common themes. And so a bizprov course is essentially like, Let's just see what you do with this, and then we'll maybe make some connections to the biz- business world in that. I see. And I think that as a teacher of that, because we have six or so teachers of that, the, the challenge is it's so basic that we want to make it more interesting, and that's the wrong move. It is so basic. But I remember the first time I played some of these improv games and was incredibly challenged by them and really inspired to think because yeah. of them. So that's what I want to provide for people who do the BizProv is it, I just need them to participate. And then once they participate, they can the, the impact can be long-lasting. Yeah, exactly. Because they just go on their own. They go, oh, when we played that thing, that made me think of when I interact with a banking client and I have to like you know get through their story yeah (laughs) you know and like wrap it up so i can get to the business well the way that you do that is counterintuitive you listen you agree and then and then you find an out right rather than being rude and being like well we got to talk about business now stop telling me about your farm whatever it is yeah right because the farm is actually key to that business transaction i see the farm is part of their life so you listen to that you hear them you acknowledge it and then you you know, transition the conversation. Yeah, which is just doing improv. Yeah, which is just totally. the basic idea of improv. Yeah. Um, any any last things that you wish to uh, impart? Say. Yeah, two things. One, the powers of improvisation, because we do them in everyday life, can be used for evil, and I don't recommend. <laughs> okay, I, I think that people that learn improvisation can be more manipulative, and understand more about how to get what they want out of people and I would recommend against that path yeah that's wow two number two I I have a thing that I like to say that I just will add to your podcast which is linked to something I've already said but it's have anticipations not expectations and I think that this is I'll just, that's an overreaching, maybe not 
It, it is. It's an overreaching statement. You should just like apply that to everything. Okay. Expectations will just slaughter your time. Yeah. It will just, you'll have such a bad time with expectations. But with anticipations, it's like, oh, I anticipated you might say that. Here's my response. Because with expectations, you have a goal that you've decided is going to happen. And when you achieve that or when you get to that expectation, it is never the same. Or people have something they can ruin for you. Like an expectation is something that somebody else can take away from you with their behavior. Yeah. Which is infuriating. Yeah, that is. But, is it, but an anticipation is like, oh, I'm just going to anticipate that this might happen if it doesn't. No. Nice. Yeah. I, I like that. I, I'm going to, you can use this. I like ending these with uh, one recommendation of anything at all. Do you have any sort of recommendation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my recommendation is, if you haven't seen it, to watch Trust Us. This is all made up. It's great. Yeah. TJ and Dave. Uh, TJ uh, Jagodowski and Dave Pasquese. Pasquese. It's really, really, really amazing. I've watched it eight times, and every time that I watch it, I'm introducing it to somebody who's never seen it, and I'm overjoyed every time I watch it. I love it also. I think it's great. Have you ever met either of them? Uh, I met TJ briefly in Chicago, you know, just in passing. Yeah. Uh, 